Welcome to episode 35 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's number one open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and we haven't even recorded the intro yet, and I can see a loaded waiting room. Before we get to that, let's get some quick intros out of the way. From Gainesville, Florida, everyone's favorite barista, Anthony Rue. How was your weekend, Anthony? It has been kind of hectic. We're coming up on a, a massive punk rock music festival in downtown Gainesville, and our shop is kind of the eye of the hurricane, and it uh, will do about four or five days worth of business for every day that we're open. From Sydney, Australia, the Camerosity Podcast's leading candidate to be the UK's next Prime Minister, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. Do you think you have a chance, Theo? I might, but do you know, here's a little bit of trivia for, for everybody. The UK has actually changed Prime Ministers twice since we've had the last European episode. See if we can go for number three. <laughs> well, maybe you'll get uh, appointed and survive less than 44 days, so I, I, we wish you luck. And finally, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, the man who loves the post office, Mr. Paul Reibold. How has business been, Paul? Mike, it's been so busy. I just don't know what's going on. I, I, I'm not sure whether I found a rope or I lost a horse. I just wanted to thank Ryan Jones for being on our last episode. Um, not only was it a really great episode, it was our best listened to episode ever in terms of first week listens. So thanks for all the support. As you guys saw, Ryan opened and closed to Surface Window within what, like 12 hours or so. So he's definitely busy. Uh, thanks to hopefully a lot of you listeners who maybe got some cameras in. If you didn't, just wait till the next time. We have a lot of people in the waiting room. I'm going to start letting people in and do some quick intros and maybe get started with some camera chat. Oh my gosh, that's a lot of people coming in. Jeez, I don't know if we've got enough chairs for everybody, mate. <laughs> definitely need to rent some more chairs for next time. We'll rent out a bigger church. We have some returning guests, some new faces, at least one that I don't recognize. Uh, first person I see is Ira Cohen. Hey, Ira. Howdy. How you doing? <laughs> We're pretty good. Uh, Bob Rodoloni. Hey, Bob. Hi, Mike. Right. From uh, the Great White North, Bill Smith. Hey, Bill. Hey, how's it going, Mike? All right. Andrew Smith, welcome back. Hey, how you doing? All right. Larry, Larry Effler, how you doing, buddy? I'm good. You? Uh, we're all doing well here. Miles Leibach, how, how's it going? Good. Good to see everyone. Do you have a Cosmo with you right now or a, a Gimlet or a, a Martini at least? We expect to see you kick back with a nice cocktail. Uh, I, in fact, do have the Willet Rye in my Glen Cairn. <laughs> <laughs> you did not let us down. Thank you. No. <laughs> oh, very cool. Uh, Sherry Christensen. It's been a long time, Sherry. How you doing? It it Good, good. It has been a long, long time. I'm going to have to pull up my, my guest list here to see if I could quickly remember the last time you were on. It's been a while, but welcome. It's been to, a welcome long back. time. Yeah. Thanks. Is, is harvest over? Harvest is over. That must feel good. There was ice on the water this morning, so Oof. it's cold. Did we get it in before the Colorado low uh, rolled in. Uh, we had a really nice fall. Um, I missed the last week of it, sadly, but uh, yeah, we got it in. Uh, nice weather. It's been beautiful until last week. Everything's in. The fall work's done. So it's just put everything away until the snow that the south part of uh, the province got the other day. <laughs> hey, Dan Tamarkin. Dan's here. How y'all doing? Man, we got a celebrity lineup today. How you doing? <laughs> good, good. How are you all? all right. 
All right. Well, I just thought maybe we get started, catch up on some stuff we've been working on. We didn't really have any special guests, but the number of faces I'm seeing on my screen would, would suggest otherwise. Uh, a lot of people have given us some feedback on things that they want to hear us talk about. Uh, I think somebody wanted us, uh, demanded some point and shoot discussion. Uh, we're getting more and more desire for, for brand specific ones. So maybe we thought we would... Uh, stick with uh Fotlander for today uh we'll so we'll get into some history maybe some tips and tricks some of our favorite models some advice but I think it's cool that Dan showed up uh your spidey senses must have been tingling because your name came up at the end of the last episode uh Anthony was perusing the Tamarkin auction catalog that he had and uh he had a he had a there was a what camera was it again Anthony that you really wanted to Oh, it's, 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 it's the Leica 72. I suggested that if any of the, the listeners wanted to support Camerosity, that they should go onto your auction and buy the Leica 72 and that we would make sure that it circulates between uh, the, the hosts so that we could all take pictures with it and enjoy it and maybe do up a little write-up about it. But that'd be a great way to support Camerosity. And to mark in camera and auctions. <laughs> Yeah, this one is actually kind of a spectacular example of the camera because it has the original swing out uh, viewfinder mask and it's just in terrific condition. It's hard to believe that it was ever used. So uh, yeah, I'm really happy to have it. I got real lucky when I found that. That's pretty cool. Actually, you know, Dan, I bought the opposite of that camera today. I bought an Oleo. Is that, what's that, a double frame? No, the single exposure. Oh, oh yes. With yes. The, uh, and this one is a weird one because it had the uh, the Suwu finder on it. The finder, oh, wow. the finder came on the uh, on the original. That's the hardest part of the whole thing. Yeah, actually, that's fine. Those and I didn't realize it, but they they actually sold it two ways. They sold it with that little uh, pop up finder, the one that flipped up, and uh, then they sold it with the Suwu. That's that's a heck of a find. Those little both little finders, the folding one and uh, the Suwu, are tiny little objects so they tend to got get lost over the last say 70 years dan that like a 72 do you guys have estimates for what you expect it will sell for or do you guys not do that estimates in our auction are pretty realistic so we start at the low estimate of our auction catalog listing and for this camera it's six thousand dollars so i i think that's a little bit low six to eight okay is the is the estimate I think that's a little bit low. I mean, I think that these cameras are so hard to find and they don't come up very often, especially with the little, the rare um, uh, swinging mask for the viewfinder. So I actually think it'll go up above eight. That's you wouldn't cool. take 6,000 Australian dollars for it, would you? <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to. <laughs> I'd love to, but no, there's Gotta no- give it a try. That's too funny. Oh, for, for the listeners who, who aren't up on their, their Leica model numbers, what makes the 72 unique is it was the uh, half frame Leica. So those of us that are that are half frame fanatics, it's, it's sort of a legendary camera that you just, you really don't see that often in the marketplace. What was it actually designed for, Dan? Was it a post camera like some of the other half frames were? Well, it was a, um, uh, yeah, it, it was made so that you could get more exposures out of the roll. And I think that it was original use was scientific and, um, and or for post. Yeah, which would make sense. It was based on the Leica 3A, which was, you know, tried and true. It came a lot later than the 3A though, right? It was made a lot later? 
They, yes, it was made towards the end of the run of the 3A, and it was also okay. made in two batches. It was made in both Canada and in Wetzlar. Okay. Collectors and I describe different values to each, but I, I think they're both equally rare. Because I was that one uh, made in Germany. Uh, this one was made in Wetzlar. Yes, I think they only made half as many of those as they did of the Canadian ones. Yes, there were more, many more Canadian made than there were okay. than there were um, uh, uh, German. I bought my Leica seventy two from you a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, uh, thank you. It's a it's a great camera. They're very rare, and most of the ones we've seen in the last few years have been really clean, really beautiful specimens. Yeah, this was nice. I was going to ask, but I, you kind of already answered it. Which one came first, the Leica 72 or Nikon made the half frame S3, the S3M? Is, isn't that right, Bob? Yeah, they made the S3M. That was about 1963, 64, somewhere okay. around there. So that was probably a lot later than the Leica came out. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It made 195. The last thing I wanted to say, you know, this whole summer has gone by and I have so many stories. I feel like I never had a chance to tell. But after your show, you were on earlier this spring, Dan, I came to visit you uh, at your shop or your, your gallery. And, I, you know, we kind of already talked about it, you know, beautiful, uh, outstanding. You don't feel like you're in a it's, it's more of a, a, an experience than, than going into a store. But the one thing that I, I found really interesting was, you know, you, you guys take hour long appointments. Um, so you, I, I occupied an hour of your time, but then I was like, can I take some photos of just stuff around the, the, the gallery? And he's like, yeah, sure. So your next appointment came in and it was a young lady um, who clearly had bought something from you, but you were going through like tutorials on how to use it. So uh, I, I found it really interesting hearing how you kind of presented using, I think she had what, like an M3 maybe or an M6. It was definitely an M camera. But you did a really awesome job of explaining that. So I, my question for you is, is that like a service you offer to people who buy stuff from you where you'll kind of be their teacher as well? Or how does that, is that, was that an anomaly? Uh, no, that was not anomalous at all. Especially if people have bought gear from us, we offer classes and one-on-one -on -one instruction and, and all of that. We try to work by appointment because when it seems like when one person walks in, 10 people walk in and it's very difficult. And I think with a luxury brand, people want attention and people want, uh, you know, they want to play around with the cameras and want to check them out and they want to hang out, uh, which we love. Our appointments are 50 minutes. It's like a therapy because we need, you know, we need 10 minutes to prepare for the next, for the next uh, sure. uh, yeah. patient. So. Uh, but no, that's not anomalous at all. But, you know, some people have lots of questions about using their camera and some people have no questions. Like most of the people that we uh, serve have a deep knowledge or at least more than just a glancing knowledge of Leica or rangefinder cameras. So it's pretty easy going. But certainly if someone got the camera from us. Uh, we're always more than happy to to take some time and show you the finer points. But that's is that an additional service or is it included with a purchase? It it is included with purchase um, to a point. So we have some clients who come around who want lessons and want pointers. It depends on if you're looking for like I gotcha. You know, five minutes or a really in depth kind of deep dive, as they say. I gotcha. And um, would like. I, maybe you can't do this, but like, what's the typical age range? I mean, is it, is it younger people? Is it people of all ages? Is there any kind of pattern you see of who comes in? It, it's all ages. I mean, we, most of the, most of the younger people that we see are interested in film primarily or 
point-and-shoot cameras. It's a very wide age range. I'm happy to say that kind of like vinyl, LPs and whatnot, that uh, uh, some of the younger folks are interested in film and interested in that very tactile and kind of classic vintage Leica experience. One day I'll write a taxonomy of, of, of Leica aficionados and, you know, it'll have everybody from the, from the person that carries a, a Leica camera wrapped up in a towel in their backpack to, you know, people with, you know, thousand dollar uh, camera cases and, and all the bells and whistles. In it. And, and I did show up to your uh, shop with a backpack full of Leicas wrapped in towels. So, and, and, you know, we love that. We absolutely love that. I'm a dyed in the wool camera nerd, baby. I'll talk cameras all day. If you let me, I, I bet you weren't expecting me to pull out a URL like though from that bag. Uh, you did a very good job. I had no idea what to expect. <laughs> well, that's cool. Uh, no, it's it's great. Um, anybody who gets to pass through Chicago, definitely um, uh, visit Damn Shot. You have to make an appointment and uh, good luck parking. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And yeah, please do come visit. Awesome. All right. Well, um, I don't know. Sherry, what's new with you, Sherry? It's been a while. Anything cool you want to talk to us about? Uh, not a whole heck of a lot, actually. I uh, stopped in the thrift shop the other day and they said, oh, we have something for you in in the office. Oh, okay. So she goes in and gets this great big, really crappy, dirty bag and pulls out a Nikon EM with a bunch of lenses and pretty much every accessory that could go with it. And it had the winder on it. And the EM is not one of my favorites. No, I'm, I actually really like the camera. I, I appreciate its very small size. I mean, it's pretty much the smallest body you can get if you still want to shoot Nikon F glass. Yes, it is, but it's not well made. I've had two of them that have had broken winders. Okay. And um, the last one, uh, instead of uh, trying to find a donor body that wasn't broken, I just took a little dab of Gorilla Glue and fixed it up. There you go. And shot it for a while and got rid of it. <laughs> Were any of the lenses anything special or just like Series E? Just the Series E and then a couple um, uh, third party. I haven't I gotcha. tried Kitstar. Has anyone yeah. tried Kitstar? Probably I don't not. know if they're any Probably. good or not. But The Series E are, are very good lenses though because they're, yeah. uh, they're very underrated um, because they're supposed to be the cheap range. But uh, the 50 millimeter 1.8 on yeah. Uh, yeah. on on my camera sometimes and it, it's great it's 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 small it's light and and the quality is actually really good well for what i paid for the dirty bag of stuff was about the value of the series e so i'm not out anything if nothing didn't work but everything worked even the I, winder i have an em <laughs> that i bought new for my girlfriend who's now my wife uh so it worked out pretty well for me <laughs> You still get to use it. Did you say you bought it for her or from her? For her. Oh, for her. Uh, okay. She. I, I had just graduated high school, and she was still in high school, and she was the uh, uh, yearbook editor, and she kept wanting to borrow my Minolta, so I went and bought her a black, sexy Nikon. Very cool. <laughs> so, so, Sherry, dirty bag, camera you don't particularly like, but you still bought it and walked out with well, it. Well, I've got to rescue <laughs> it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they they saved it for her, you know. You've got it. If they save it for you, you gotta gotta buy it. That's true, yeah, Mary. You gotta buy true. It. <laughs> so how many yeah. people how many people here have a place they go to where the, the people that work there like know to look for cameras for you 
to where you come along with like, oh, it's you're here. <laughs> is that a common occurrence for any of you? Michael Gossett, are you shaking your head? Oh yeah. <laughs> I've got I've got a great story about I found a new a new place. Um Okay, it, let's hear it. I was in the little tiny town of Sinking Spring, Ohio. Went into a random antique shop and I'm catching up on episodes. We guys have been talking about repairing cameras and old film. I stumbled on an old photographer's cache of just all sorts of weird film. I've got like all his slides. Wait, 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 Paul's, Paul's listening. So you got to be careful. If you hype it up too much, he's in Ohio too. So <laughs> well, I, I think I've already cleaned it out. There okay, are a few right. things still there. Carry on. Um, but uh, some photographer, I think he must've been a military photographer, but I'm, I'm seeing slides of the Ohio Renaissance Festival, but he had a, a Canon T90 and mine's broken. Mine's missing the... The only thing's wrong with it is it's missing the shutter button. So I bought a junk camera, ripped the shutter button off of it, just slammed it down on it, and it works. So I, I cannibalized an old one. Very cool. This guy's was to fix mine. But it's got, I've got some old film that I don't even know if it's going to be good or not, but Ektachrome EH13520. <laughs> I don't know. I might try it. I'm going to go with probably not. <laughs> I might just keep you it in it. here because it's cool. If, if that T90 has the battery tray, you've got a treasure there because that's what everybody's looking for. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't look like it has anything special other than the main battery thing with it. Let me see if I'm fine. I'll be back. I've had terrible luck with the T90. I've had three of them and they all had the EEE problem. Uh, one of them I was able to sort of get working by slamming it on the floor a bunch of times. People say that there's a magnet in there that can get stuck. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, that worked for maybe a minute and then it, then it was dead again. So, uh, for anybody who doesn't, who isn't familiar with the T90, that was Canon's, it was kind of an interesting camera in the sense that it was a, a serious professional camera. I mean, it had every feature you could possibly want state of the art, everything, but it was completely manual focus. Um, so it would have been, you know, not part of the EO series, but it's, it's a robust, really, really neat camera. It's got that cool red seven segment led display in the viewfinder just like the a1 has uh it's a big body very very rugged feeling but they just don't hold up you know dealers hated them did they yeah dealers hated those cameras for one reason you couldn't set them on a shelf because they're round they would, right they, they would fall over yeah when you sat them down and it had a lens on it it was so front heavy that even with a 50 millimeter lens the camera would fall over so we we made us we had some little plexiglass uh, pedestals to stick under the lens to keep them from falling because we had several of them hit the floor. This oh, one's pretty nasty. I don't think it has an extra battery tray, just the normal thing. <laughs> no, that's that's okay, Michael. That's that's the thing that that battery tray because the battery trays were were prone to corrosion. Well, this one's corroded. It's not going to do any good. <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. Well, so that's why that's why people are paying big bucks for them. So was there, Paul, I mean, this is probably a hard question to answer because you're never supposed to have a battery in a camera, but why is it that the 80s, when like AA batteries, like I'm thinking of like the Nikon um, N2000, the N2020, there's a whole bunch of cameras from that era that almost universally have corroded battery compartments, right? Like obviously you leave a battery in a camera for too long, it can leak, but why so consistently is it 80s cameras seem to always be corroded? Is it they use a different kind of metal or... You know? Well, it was the battery manufacturer as, as well as much as anything. The uh, the the one that was the worst prone. There were two two models that were terrible: Konica FT and FS ones, and Nikon N two thousands and N twenty twenties. And I think it was because they used triple A's. 
they were very prone toward corrosion. We, we were primarily selling a, a German battery called a Varta, and the Varta batteries hardly ever leaked. I mean, you could leave men forever. And uh, they were they were just seemed to be sealed up better than most alkaline batteries. The original Minolta Maximus 7000 came from the factory with a triple A battery holder. And you yeah. had to change it right away to the double A holder, which happened yep. to be more con uh, convenient and comfortable. Yep. Yeah, that was either that or put the lithium holder in it either either way, because those the triple A batteries, for some reason, just had a tendency toward corrosion. Okay, that makes sense. Just the sign of the times, I guess. I found uh, Yashica Electros with the, the large mercury battery in them that not only do they never leak sometimes, uh, but I've even found a couple that still had a charge. Like, I, I couldn't believe it, you know, that this old PX32 5.6 volt battery still had life in it. So it's like certain battery technologies seem to be more prone to leak than others, I guess. But the 80s alkalines were not very well for keeping their juice in. Yeah, I bought a Nikon L35AF and the batteries were still in it and the battery door was actually bulging. So I thought, well, I didn't pay very much for it. So I took it home and thought, well, I'll try and clean it up and see if I can get it to go. And with lots of vinegar and lots of rubbing alcohol and a pencil eraser and a little bit of scraping, it uh, cleaned <laughs> up and actually fired to life and worked if you have a dremel you can put some of the abrasive tips similar to what a dentist used on the dremel and it's much more effective than an eraser the rubberized abrasive not a stone abrasive mm -hmm. that's good to know all right dremel tips so michael gossett what are you going to do with that t90 then you got you were able to transplant the shutter release your other one's working you're just going to recycle the other one or hold on yeah. to it in case you need more parts I need a good FD camera. I've got a whole bunch of FD lenses that I bought to adapt to digital and I want to shoot them on film. I've got the 300 F4 and the 2.8L and the, the 80 to 200L and they're, they're nice lenses. Well, I don't want to repeat myself too much, but we've already talked about my favorite FD uh, <laughs> Canon body is. So uh, if you can get an EF, uh, those are quite nice. Agreed. See, everybody loves Yeah, the, the problem is I've got too much stuff I want to buy. I'm looking at a Pentax 20. 4.5 right now, waiting on payday. <laughs> Unless somebody else snags it first. I looked one up after the podcast episode and it's almost impossible on eBay to find a Canon EF because that's the nomenclature <laughs> for the lenses. Uh, it's difficult, uh, yeah. I, was, <laughs> I think that's why the prices are lower on them. If you want to look for them in eBay, just put quotes around Canon EF. Right. That way it'll discontinue the focal lengths and all the other junk in there. I can hook you up with a Canon T80 that lasted through eight twelfths of the uh, frugal film project. <laughs> oh, and it died? It, it died once and then I resurrected it and then it died for and the, the battery Aww. door fell off. And I gotcha. It, I mean, I guess I could use duct tape, but don't tell Sherry because I, I didn't know I wanted to. Oh, well, you to just get... did, Larry. <laughs> Canon had a long stretch there where battery doors were sort of like their Achilles heel. So they, uh, whoever was in charge of the battery door department at Canon from about like 75 to maybe 85, uh, probably did not earn too many bonuses. Apparently. Well, the one on Nikon is not any better. My battery door lock broke on my D300 last week. It just, it broke or yeah. it just. Well, the, there's a little thing that you flip down and it just came off in my hand. Well, those are easy to replace though, Ira. I mean, because you had to, didn't you have to take that off when you put the vertical grip on? No. On a D300, you just grab it and twist it lightly, 
and the whole thing will just pop right off. I'll look at it because I was like this close to getting a new one. A new camera or a new door? Because you should be able to get a new door. I will. It, the door is fine. It's the little uh, thing that you turn. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, that's a different story. It's a little lever that uh, that pops the door open. Yep. Yep, okay. Right now I have a little piece of dental floss tied around the catch. <laughs> and whenever I want to open the door, I got to pull it down. Put a bungee cord on it. That works better. Yeah. If you're looking for a replacement, I've got a D300S I never used. And it's an almost perfect, nearly unused condition. Sure. <laughs> oh, wow. That's awesome. While we were talking, uh, we had a couple more people jump in. Um, back from episode 30, the camera store episode, Stephen Grasso. Stephen, welcome back. How are you doing there, buddy? I'm doing well. I'm just going to try to not buy any more cameras. Yeah. So what he's the last time he was on, he bought an M5 from Paul in the middle of the show. So um, <laughs> literally this morning, Paul was throwing up pictures of stuff he needs to get rid of and, and he yeah. wants to pawn it off on somebody on this show well, so what you don't know is right after that happened i bought a q2 monochrome and an m10 i'm thinking about a bassomatic they're nice go for it bassomatic right here i could put this in your i could put this in your home looks like it has the septon on it too I've, I've got one of those that's my main reason i wanting to get one <laughs> it's got a septon that it comes pre-element separated so you don't have to worry about you don't have to worry about whether the elements will separate because it already has. You know, I always think about that commercial that Dan Aykroyd did on Saturday Night Live uh -huh. about the bassomatic. 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 Yeah. Uh, a serious question about element separation, uh, like on the on the uh, notorious uh, Ultron. Uh, how much does it affect image quality? Like, you know, you'll see this bloom of pretty colors and floral patterns of separation uh does it really have much of an effect on the unless it's like how bad does it have to beat it to become a serious problem mine the one anthony don't you have one with element separation also i do i think it's a case-by-case -case basis because mine is is very noticeable and i have shot it on both my ultramatic and my bessomatic and you could not tell that there was an issue with that lens. I mean, it just looks fantastic. I've shot um, the, the one I have, I've shot on both the Sony and the Fuji digital and absolutely no indication of a problem. I have uh, one of my retina reflexes has a Schneider 51.9 lens on it that has a little tiny bit of separation. It, should, it looks like a little flower and it's right smack dab in the middle of the lens. I was positive I would see some kind of flare or something and i didn't i even mounted it to um i have one of those cheap uh photodiox digital dkl adapters and i mounted that lens to a digital camera with the separation in the middle and i couldn't see a difference either so i have to imagine that at some point it does eventually have an issue you know because light is going to refract or bounce incorrectly mm -hmm. but um from like what anthony's saying my experience is uh, most of the time, it just looks bad, but the lens probably will still perform. That said, I wouldn't pay a premium for a lens that has separation for that yeah. reason. So, Paul, that that one that's on the Bessomatic, is it just near the edges, or is it pretty much the whole thing? It's a, it's about halfway, maybe okay. two the way over it, and it's the brown smudge. Does yeah. it always progress? Uh, it probably will, but it will happen pretty slowly. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't happen that fast. Mine just looks like a like a 
about a third of the lens just looks iridescent when you look at it from the front. Yeah. There was definitely a period where both Fultlander and Zeiss just were really, really well known for separation. I, I have to imagine it's, they, they always say Canadian balsam, but I don't know that they were using it then. Maybe they were, but it had something to do with how they cemented the pairs together. Yeah. One of my friends uh, here locally had an 85 millimeter planar for the Conterex and uh, it had really bad separation. So I sent it up to Igor who had a friend who was, was sure he could fix it. This guy soaked it for like six months and he still, <laughs> still couldn't get it apart. So I've, I've got it back now. I'm going to take it back, but I'll tell you how to fix separation. You get yourself a toaster oven. Nice. You get yourself a level and you plug the toaster oven in, you set it to about 105 degrees and you don't want to start with a frozen lens. You want it to be, you want to warm it up slowly. You take it in and out and in and out and let it, once it starts to get almost too hot to touch, you make sure that it's in there and it's level. Now, all of this is easier said than done, but I'm here to tell you that what will happen is the cement will loosen and then you let it cool slowly and potentially any cup uh, doublets or maybe even triplets would re-cement themselves. And I had a technician who would do this back in the day. I had a technician who would do that and he did indeed save a few lenses this way. But it's important to note that you never want to try this with anything that you care about. Yeah. <laughs> so do you do you stick the entire lens in there or do you want to get the cemented group out and just stick that in there? Well, I mean, ideally you would only treat the part or the elements of the lens that need right. treating. But I think with a heavy-handed technique like this, it's just best to just put it in there, make sure it's level and <laughs> have at it. Do you remember John Van Stelton at Focal Point? Of course. Yeah. Dan was, or John was the only guy that would, I think he was, he's retired now, of course, but he was the last guy that could really deal with, with separation like that and get it to work. I mean, he did some just wonderful stuff for me over the years that, uh, uh, and I still keep in touch with him. I, I, I begged him to fix a couple of things. And he said, I sold all my equipment because I knew people like you were going to ask me. Ask him next time you talk to him, ask him if now that he's retired, he can relay the secrets of the toaster oven. I will really, I definitely do that. So we have 16 people on this call. Uh, one of you's got to try this. Who wants to be the guinea pig? <laughs> I was just going to say, who said that he soaked the lens for six months? Uh, that was uh, a, a friend of Igor's up in Cleveland. All right. Well, if you soak it for six months in an ultrasonic cleaner, it, those vibrations get the solvent in there really well. That may be what happened. This one, uh, the one I've got here is actually, I'm going to go shoot with this tomorrow. It, either it's getting better or now the stain is over the whole lens because I can't even see it anymore. <laughs> it may not be partial any longer. It's completely... Uh, separated in the middle it's funny we we literally our last episode was about the proper way to fix camera repairs and how we were saying shade tree <laughs> repairs and now we're using ultrasonic uh jewelry cleaners toaster ovens and and i'm slamming canon t90s on the floor so gotta love it well mike can we use this as a maybe a segue to do our how to buy voigtlander segment sure i yeah. wanted to do now for 35 episodes been been waiting for a chance i know that you know, my own weird personal history, you know, I, I went through a period where I lost almost all my cameras in a robbery and it took 
about five years before I was in a little Berlin camera shop and I saw a, a little uh, Voigtlander Vito C and and my wife Janet was like you should buy that camera it looks like something you'd like um and when I I bought that and it like got me completely back into film photography and when I came back to the states from Berlin I was like I wonder if I can find other Voigtlanders on eBay and this is about five years ago where suddenly I realized you can get a whole lot of Voigtlander for a very little amount of money and these these were like massively overperforming cameras and so like I I went on a, a Catawiki and bought a, a a lot of like 15 variants of the Vito V for uh, like $35. And, uh, and, and then I sort of just like started to fall in love with these cameras. And it's now, I think that, you know, I, I did a, a count last week when we started talking about this and I, I know that I've got probably uh, maybe 35, 40 different iterations of Voigtlander cameras that I shoot with on a regular basis. And up to the point that, just this week, my uh, my splurge for 2022 is that a uh, uh, sort of a friend of the podcast had a pristine uh, 1939 uh, Besser rangefinder, and I, I kind of spent the rent on that because it's a camera that I've wanted for ages. Uh, so it's a it's a it's a rangefinder focusing pre-war Voigtlander. Uh, and I and I got to tell you too, a lot of times those 30s folding cameras with rangefinders, the the rangefinder just looks like a tumor kind of tacked on, but that Bessa Anthony you got looks really nice. I mean, it looks like it was meant to have that from from the very go. So that thing is beautiful. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. But uh, I know that that like Steve Grasso and I both sort of got back into this at the same time, and uh, we both sort of got addicted to uh, the the Vito B is like the perfect sort of like super simple 1960s rangefinder fixed lens. Uh, you can pick them up for around $35, $40. Now they're probably up to like $60 or $70. Uh, but the color Scopar lens on it is fantastic. Um, it's built like a brick. It's just a lot of fun to travel with. It looks cool as hell. But that was sort of the, 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 the Vito was very much the, the gateway drug for me uh, to get back into all of this. And we've got people flashing their Vitos from all over the, the screen here. Um, but you know, if you if you if you really want to go down the rabbit hole on on Mike's website, uh, starting with the uh, review that he did of the Vito Two, he's got a very detailed history of Voigtlander, and it's a crazy story because it was a company that started in the 1800s making like optics and opera glasses, and by the 1890s began making uh, field cameras and uh, plate cameras, uh, and then slowly uh, transformed into a, a I, I would assume you would call it a top tier German brand. They certainly seem to compete with, with Zeiss uh, up until the war. There are photographers like uh, the Hungarian photographer working in Paris, Brassai, famous for his, his book, Paris at Night, completely shot on a, uh, a Voigtlander Bergheil. Uh, so the first chance I had, I, I picked up a Bergheil with the Heliar lens and holy smokes, is that a fun camera to shoot? Uh, there's just a character to those cameras and it folds up to about the size of a paperback book when you fold it up super fun focuses down to like three inches just it's a, it's a delight to shoot and then if you move up starting you know those are those are cameras that could either be uh sheet film cameras or they can use the rollbacks from the like a plowbill rollback or a rolly rollback and then moving up through the 1930s they started to get uh, a little bit more compact and uh uh, you can start to see the introduction of the, the camera lines like the Bessa, which has gone through iterations starting in 
the 1930s going up to the Cosina built Bessa rangefinders of the 1990s. Um, you know, that name was in pretty much constant use through the whole uh, you know, history of film for the most part. It's a pretty good summary. They started in the 1700s uh, making like opera glasses, eyeglasses. And, you know, they they were one of the first makers of the daguerreotype cameras. Um, I don't know this to be true, but, you know, Louis Daguerre probably used something made by Footlander. They they got out of camera making, though, until the early 20th century. So they, they didn't do it quite as long as some of the others did. but their ability to make quality designs. And what the thing I like about Footlander is more times than not, they went against the grain of style. The one, the, the biggest example of that was the superb, you know, they made other than it being a TLR that shoots the same size negatives on the same film. Uh, they it looks nothing like a Rolleiflex. Um, and then you look at the Vitesses with the big top plate for, for, <laughs> for those of you who haven't seen my uh, review of the Vitessa, I made up a fictional, uh, what I interpreted to be conversation between the designers and the engineers when coming up with this camera. Um, I, I won't read it here, but uh, people have, have commented that it's, it's, it's quite humorous and that, you know, do we want to put the uh, wind lever on the bottom or top? And they're like, let's do it on the top. And the engineer was like, oh, good. That's easier to do. But let's make it a huge pole that sticks out of the top and double barn doors and stuff. You know, the, the ultramatic. You know, I, I had to look, Paul. My septon is not separating. So I don't know if I'm supposed to do something to prevent it from ever happening. But does your camera, does that ultramatic actually work? That's the problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this, this is a CS. I'm really lucky. I got this one from a reader of my site who um, loaned it to me and then disappeared. Never responded to another email I ever sent him. So uh, I'm sore or less, more or less the, uh, the custodian of it for now, but um, it works great. Is the viewfinder desilvering or? Uh... Not at all. It is crystal clear. I can see the split image. It's a diagonal split image. Um, oh, the, wow. meter, the meter works. I fell into a ring of fire with the Ultramatics. And, yeah. uh... If you're interested in the Voigtlanders, if you look at the 20th century, you know, from really the cameras that I would look for from the 1930s to the 1950s are the 120 roll film cameras, you know, starting off with, you get a pre-war Bessa, you can get a, uh, a Bessa 66, which is their tiny sort of micro version of the Bessa that shoots uh, six by six. Uh, and then uh, moving on up to the post-war, the Percaro, the Percaro 2, you know, we've mentioned it repeatedly on our shops. It's gone from six to six by nine to six by six. And then sort of post-war, you get the best of one, which is a giant beast of a six by nine. Uh, and then after that, you had the best of two, uh, which is a range finder focusing uh, camera. It is a series of lenses that come on it. There's the, the I think it's got a Voitar is the cheaper lens. Uh, the more expensive lens is the color Scopar, goes up to the Heliar. And then if you have like a, a late model Honda that you want to sell, you could buy the Apo Lanthar, uh, which the last I heard one was selling for around 14 grand, but that was, those are, those are just crazy expensive, but most of these folding six by nines and six by six, you can get for under 200 to $300. And for that style of camera, uh, you just can't go wrong with it. They fold down flat, fit in your coat, fit. Uh, the, the, the Scopar and Heliar lenses are spectacular. 
then after that, you move into their 35 millimeter lines. You've got the Vito, the Vito 2, uh, then the Vito B. So it goes from being a, uh, a collapsible folding camera to being a fixed lens, uh, very sort of like a little tank. Then there's a Vito uh, CLR with a light meter and a rangefinder. And uh, then, oh, there was the Vito 3, which is after the, um, the Vito 2, they came up with the Vito 3, which is basically a prominent. Uh, with a collapsible folding uh, front lens element that has a, a Ultron, yes. a fixed Ultron. Uh, that Vito 3, they're going to cost you a bit more because they do have the Ultron. Uh, brilliant camera. Uh, that's my like New York travel camera because whenever I'm walking the streets of New York, I take the Vito because it just slips in your coat pocket, pull it out, Ultron lens, can't argue with it. You know, you're going to get great shots from it. The Vito 3 and the Prominent, they share a similar top plate. Um, right. describe how you focus that camera. You focus that camera with your left hand on a giant wheel that's on the top plate. It looks like a winding knob. Yes. Yeah. And for you, that's, that feels comfortable. Absolutely. I'm very fast focusing with that camera. Yeah. And then again, I like on the Bessomatic, that that's the position of the aperture adjustment. Yeah. Well, then after that, things start going sideways. Cause then you start going into their, their engineering. Uh, it just seems like they were trying to get, a little bit too clever by half and they had the Vitessa, then the Vitessa T and then they moved into the Bessomatic, which is their leaf shutter SLR, which I love my Bessomatic. Mine works perfectly. It's a tank, uh, quirky controls all the way across. And then from that, it goes up to the Ultramatic, which was kind of their competitor. If you read Mike's review, a competitor with the Contorex, beautiful design. I've got two. They've both got all the typical problems of desilvering mirrors. They still work perfectly fine. Uh, they're just really murky to try to shoot with. Um, and then, then things start going crazy with them and they, they, uh, were acquired by Zeiss and okay. they became sort of like a, a research platform for Zeiss to share technologies and share models. Uh, there are some really weird ones like the, uh, Zeiss icon Voigtlander Vitessa 1000, which is like the most awkward name ever in a camera. Uh, and, it's and the, the VSL, which is really a, the, the Raleigh Flex uh, SL35E is really well, that, a Voigtlander. That, well, that comes later. So they're, yeah. you know, so they're owned by, um, they're owned by, by Zeiss. And there's the mic that will post it up on the. So this is, this is the camera Anthony's talking about. It's very boxy. Um, and the, the, the full name of it, like he was saying, is Zeiss Icon Fotlander Vitessa 1000 SR. Uh, so it does have a leaf shutter, a Prontor 1000 LK leaf shutter that does top out at one 1,000th speed, which, which is pretty unusual. We talked in a previous episode about how Minolta used um, citizen shutters, which could do 1,000, 2,000, and 3,000 by altering the angle of the blades. But this one just does 1,000, 1,000th one on a leaf shutter without any special gimmicks. It's actually a pretty cool little camera bottom wind. These cameras were co-branded as Zeiss Icon Footlander. Um, and, and, and not to, to stop you yet, but the, the Bessomatic, which was the Ultramatic, um, were the last ones that were leaf shutters. But Footlander was working on a focal plane shutter Bessomatic. It exists in prototype form. Um, I don't know, Ira, you don't have one, do you? One of the focal plane Bessomatics? Wish. 
<laughs> you wish. Okay, so they only made a few of them because they were they were about ready to release it right around the time when Foltlander and Zeiss Icon merged. And after the merger, apparently Zeiss had the uh, upper hand, maybe, and they took the focal plane Foltlander Bessematic, and they it became the Icorex. So um, I actually have a picture of it on my site. One of the original Zeiss, or I'm sorry, Foltlander Bessematics, the focal plane shutter. And it looks very, very similar to the Icorac. So um, even though this is branded Zeiss Icon, some of them do actually say Zeiss Icon Foltlander on there. These are actually made in Braunschweig. So even though it's officially a Zeiss camera, these were made at the same factory that had been making all the Foltlander cameras before it. So And, and way, is that the engineering DNA that became the, the later Raleigh Flex SL35s? I thought the Icorex eventually evolved into the Roly 35, which evolved into the 350. Yeah, what I had read was that okay. Raleigh made the decision to kill their own design and, and adopt the innards of the Icorex Voigtlander. Right. But it wasn't, it was the VS, uh, was the, it's a VS model is the uh, the Voigtlander. So, well, the, the weird story is, of course, that eventually Zeiss Icon dumps the Voigtlander brand, but this is sort of the history of the company. It just keeps on getting passed around like a like a hot potato, and it gets purchased by Roli, which is interesting considering that uh, the two founders of Roli worked for Voigtlander and quit to start their own company when Voigtlander decided not to take their their TLR design uh, into production. Uh, so the the two ex employees end up owning Voigtlander. And it goes through a whole series of, of iterations because I know that there's the uh, Mike. What is the what's the VS model of the the Voigtlander SLR that really is the Rolly 35s or M? Do you remember? There's VSL one and VSL two and VSL two E, I believe. Yeah, those are the the those, those are almost identical to the the Rollies. Yeah, um, I think one was an M42 mount, and then it became the uh, uh, the QBM mount. So I, I've got the, the Roly branded one in QBM, but the lens happens to be a color a color Ultron QBM mount there lens. Yeah. But then there were all sorts of, of weird little sort of vestigial Voigtlander cameras, like the 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 Vitaret 110 is the 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 Voigtlander 110 camera, which uh, was designed by the same guy who designed the 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 Roly 110. Um, actually, I find it to be more reliable. Uh, it's, a, it's a slightly better camera. Uh, than the Roli. And then eventually the camera just, uh, you know, Roli sort of, you know, some of the, some of these Voigtlander cameras are now being made in Singapore in the, in the Roli factory. And then it just sort of dissipates as Roli begins to dissipate. And uh, then, you know, Mike documents this on his website, the brand sells again, uh, and is eventually licensed to Cosina where the brand name is, is resurrected yet again. And uh, becomes a series of uh, rangefinders with different lens mounts uh, through the 90s. If you want to get into confusing history, <laughs> it, it jumps around so much. Like Foltlander wasn't even around for a while and it got resurrected. Um, Roly at one point was owned by Samsung in the in the mid to late 90s. Uh, they had a partnership with Schneider. So you could get some 90s Samsung branded point and shoots with Schneider lenses um i don't know why they acquired Roly, but they ended up selling that off after that samsung released one 35 millimeter slr which i reviewed the um the sr 4000 then cosina got in there like anthony is saying and it it's just it's confusing 
It, just just to make sure everybody sort of is wondering about this, I'm sure everyone's thinking about this, but Samsung released some digicams with <laughs> as well. They just they did. Just they did. Steve, you you've got one of the Voigtlander rangefinders, don't you? I did. I sold it. I had the. It, it actually wasn't a rangefinder. It was the Bessel. It was there was no viewfinder on it. You oh. had one that mounted on top, and I had a the color snapshot 25 millimeter on it which was actually more people wanted that more than they wanted the body did they make that um bessa l specifically for the wide angle lenses like the they had what a 15 millimeter they had a 24 i think so because they were really they everyone that i've ever seen had a wide angle viewfinder on it and i'm pretty sure that's the right yeah yeah they they made a 12 15 25 and uh, 21 and 25 and they were made for that uh for the camera without the viewfinder and they actually couldn't sell them. Dealers, uh, they actually gave them to dealers. If you bought, I think it was three uh, Bessa R's or Bessas, uh, the ones with the rangefinder or the ones with the viewfinder and rangefinder, they would give you a free Bessa. It was actually a good camera. Same camera, just didn't have a top on it. I mean, it didn't have anything to look through. I mean, I suppose if that's specifically what you're trying to do, if you want to shoot 15 millimeter, 25 millimeter, why would you want a viewfinder? All that's doing is unnecessarily making the camera larger because you're going to have to clip something on it anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, it worked fine. It was it was a great camera and you were estimating focus anyway because right. the 12, 15, and 25 didn't have rangefinder cam. Right. You were going to estimate focus anyway. Because depth of field is going to be extreme. I yeah. mean, basically you set it to what, like 12 feet and pretty much everything up until infinity is probably going to be in focus. So set a hyperfocal and shoot. Right. It will work fine. So, Paul, you've we've when we've talked about the Raleigh thirty five, you don't like shooting scale focused cameras, right? Like you, right. you're just you're not a fan. But what about that thing? I'm okay with those. In fact, uh, the the fifteen millimeter, I shot the fifteen on the M six a lot, and, okay. and also the uh, the twenty five. I used the twenty one, but the twenty one did have a rangefinder. But uh, the fifteen and twenty five, I mean the 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 throw from near focus to infinity was only like a quarter of a turn. I mean, it wasn't like you 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 couldn't just guess and be good. I, I had trouble with the little Roy 35s because it was just, it wasn't wide angle enough to for me to be able to estimate distance well. I gotcha. So, so Anthony, what's your what's your top three Footlanders then? My, my top three? Yeah. Uh, definitely the Bergheil, uh, which for being a camera from the 1920s, I just find that to be a magical little camera. Incredibly okay. capable. Which um, Bergheil? uh it's the small one the brown one the small the small one the, is it two by three yeah two by three they made like three or four sizes of the Bergheil. okay all right what's the next one uh next one is going to be the Perkeo 2 yeah i'd be one of my three too that camera is a is is so much fun and then otherwise i'm gonna go with an outlier i really like shooting the prominent i know that that camera has a bad reputation for being weirdly engineered and 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 awkward uh but i just i have always enjoyed carrying and shooting that camera uh i can move very quickly with it um and always get great results and it just feels like you know it, you know it just it has it's, it's way over engineered you know you're, you're fiddling with this knob on the top plate to change the focus and uh everything about it feels like it should be wrong uh but it's a camera that, that i just i really enjoy shooting cool so does anybody else have a favorite Footlander? yes one of the first cameras I ever had was the Bessa 66 my father got for me in a pawn shop. 
and unfortunately it was stolen when the rest of uh, our cameras were robbed when our apartment was. And I'm currently in, in the market for one, but with a Heliar lens, which ain't too common. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, my Klein Bessa has a scoop on. Yeah, mine's, mine's even lesser. I have a Votar on mine. Yeah. But it does have the little hinge, hinge yellow filter. Which yeah, is cool. and most of them have the filters broken off, too. Yeah. So I got the I got the low-end lens, but I still have the filter. So one thing that's interesting about this camera, the first time I play with it, I, I personally don't like cameras with the viewfinders in the far right. So so from the back, it's it's on the far right. Uh, but then I remembered it's a it's a square format camera, so I could just hold it like this. Because I use my left eye when I shoot. So uh, very nice. But I, I do think I like the Perkyo 2 a little bit better as well. The Perkyo E has the rangefinder. Yeah, but much, much rarer, harder, much harder to find. And plus, um, I think all the Perkyos get you 13 exposures on a roll. The I don't know, maybe the first one doesn't because the first one doesn't have the exposure counter. But at the second one, you definitely can get 13 exposures on a roll of 120. It spaces the images so close together, you get 13. So that's kind of neat. How can the how can the Vitessa not be in any of your top threes? This I, weird looking, you know, like uh, this camera is just so cool. I just I wouldn't even take pictures with it. Just playing with it, the engineering on it is the quirks are not nonsensical. In that, actually, the ergonomics are very very good. You get used to the plunger and the and the focus with your thumb is really nice. And a message: Is there a way to fix the plunger? Mine won't stay down without sending it in. I've done it before. In fact, if you go on YouTube, Chris Sherlock has video tutorials on how to tear these down. I don't remember which video it was. I'll find it and I'll include it in the show notes. But Chris Sherlock from Retina Rescue, he's no longer making doing camera rep uh, repairs for other people, but he's making YouTube videos and still posting them. And he has uh, a video showing the full teardown of these. They're actually really easy to get open because the whole front of the camera comes off when you just, you know, you're loading film in it anyway. Uh, you do need to take the whole lens out, which is only held in by four screws. The entire thing comes out and then you can actually see the motion of the plunger. It's supposed to. So for anybody who's never had this camera before, you have this huge plunger and you push it down and that will actually advance the, um, the film. I don't have any film in this one, but it, you if you push it all the way down, it's supposed to stay. You push it down part of the way it's supposed to. Or maybe I have it backwards. Yeah. I should probably not stop talking because I haven't played with this en enough times. But so let me just edit myself here and say, uh, go watch Chris Sherlock's videos. He does show exactly how to get to that part you need to. Um, and if you watch it and think that's too far, I'm not willing to go into it, then obviously just don't do it. But um, I did it on not I have a uh, T. I did it on this one. So I don't know if, if, if you have the barn door or the interchangeable lens version, but I have the barn door one. Yeah. Okay. I, th I think it's exactly the same. I think that part of the camera didn't really change, but um, this one had that exact same problem you described and I was able to fix it. And I am far from, um, I mean, it's, it's not quite stick the camera in a toaster oven level, but uh, if you, if you watch <laughs> Sherlock's videos, you will see how it's done. I will say that that if if I just even move a screwdriver in the vicinity of the camera, it will break. And so mine had the same exact problem with the, the on my T with the plunger not staying down, uh, and also it wouldn't the, the 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 clutch wouldn't engage. So that every time you plunged it, it advanced the film. So if you it's supposed to be a lock where if it's uh, between exposures, if you plunge it, it doesn't advance the film until you you know make an exposure. Um, and I took it apart, followed the video, and now it is just irredeemably destroyed. 
so yeah, uh, it, it's not exactly a cakewalk to follow the video and get it to work yeah. because well, I, for, for what for what it's worth, I, I so I had a, I bought an L uh, Vitesa L which had the plunger not staying down. I don't have a good track record at at re repair. Uh, what did work was I put a couple of drops of lighter fluid down, let it drip down the plunger rod into whatever's inside. That plus a combination of discovering that if you, you know, you close the barn doors, you push the plunger down, don't push it down right to the bottom, push it down about a two right. millimeters off the bottom and then let go slowly and then it would stay. <laughs> so that's what I was trying to explain earlier and I wasn't doing a good job at it. At, when you get these things open, the bottom of the plunger has a notch kind of cut out to it. And there's supposed to be a spring loaded catch that catches it at that notch. and what happens is, is like, like, you know, this stuff gets gummed up. So the spring doesn't move into the right position. So basically you have this plunger going up and down with a notch cut out of it, but the thing that's supposed to catch that notch never does. So in essence, you're it's, like I said, it's a really easy fix. You just got to get into that part of the camera, just clean it. Um, you could use naphtha like, um, like I do a lot, but if you actually go, most hardware stores will sell it. You can get it on Amazon. You get electrical contact cleaner. It comes in an aerosol can and it dries completely clean, just like naphtha does. But what I, for that kind of repair, I don't like using it on lenses or where, where lenses are involved, I should say, but in something like that, where all you're trying to do is clean something, it's got the fine that little red nozzle that sticks out of the tip of the can. It's an aerosol can. You just, you know, hold it upside down, let it air dry overnight, and it'll almost always work fine. And that's it. You just put it back together. So I would encourage you to at least watch the video and, and decide if you want to try yourself. I'm going to try and, the cleaner because uh, I can actually, now that you tell me where it is, I can feel it. Yeah. It's not catching. Like I can feel it trying to engage. So like right. it might just be gummed up. Yeah. I, I've, fact, I've got my Vitessa with um, Jessibara at the moment. And one thing she actually advised me on is never, ever force anything on those cameras. They've got such a complex mechanism, even on the barn doors, that she actually said, yeah, it's okay to go in there and try and clean things up, but never, ever force anything because yeah. when it eventually makes it to the repair person, they don't know what's actually bent. And it only just takes one of the little mechanisms to be bent slightly out of place. And the whole thing just doesn't sort of seem to work. I can forgive. I like the plunger. I, it, it is awkward. It does take some getting used to, but it is different, right? Like the, to me, that's part of the appeal of shooting most Footlanders is they're different. You don't get a cookie cutter camera with most of these cameras. So I do like the plunger. I do love the back wheel focus, you know? So basically when you're holding a camera where your right thumb is naturally just resting anyway, there's a wheel there. And you just go left and right and it moves the lens forward and backwards. The one thing that kills me though on the barn door Vitesses is the uh, EV coupling, you know? So if you want to change your shutter speeds and F-stops independently, it's kind of like a retina where there's this pin that goes around the front lip of the shutter and you have to pull it down while simultaneously spinning the shutter speed dial while you're kind of shoving your finger in like between the doors. It's, I, I hate it. It's not ideal. The T is a little better because it doesn't have the barn doors. You know, all that stuff is out. And I actually think now that I'm holding it in my hand, it's, it, it's designed totally different. You actually grip a wheel. So there's no pin to pull out of the way. So they definitely improved it a lot on the T. The barn doors look cooler. 
but they yeah. don't have interchangeable lenses and they have a horrible EV coupling. Whereas the T's have the interchangeable lenses. Uh, they're, they're easier to work with. Does the T have the little fold out? I, I owned the camera for at least a month and a half before I realized there's a little fold out foot. Kickstand? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Still there. I didn't even know about it for a long time. Why did all those cameras have the evil EV lock? Did the light never change before 1972 or something? <laughs> yeah, but the 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 some of the other models like the Voigtlander Vitomatics, the EV is is uh, implemented in a nice way where your fingers naturally grab the two rings at the same time, which maintains the EV. But if you should just slide your fingers so you're only changing one, it will change independently. So this gets into a discussion about light meters, you know, and how exposure meters were, were starting to be seen in the mid fifties. Paul, I think you could explain it maybe a little better than I could, but essentially you would take your meter reading with a handheld meter and it would give you an EV number. And the idea was, is that if you had a camera with a coupled EV scale, all you ever needed to do was point it to the number your meter was reading it. You didn't even need to worry about shutter speeds and f-stops. So the, the thought was, if I have a hand meter and I meter a scene and it says 14, all I ever have to do is move this pin to 14 and that's it. Fire my picture, I'm going to get a properly exposed shot. Where it gets to be frustrating for today's collector shooters is if you're not using a meter that way, if you want to do sunny 16 or you want to use like a, a smartphone meter, you know, like some of those crazy, t you know, Gen Z people are using. Right. Right. Anthony. No, I'm, I'm yeah. kidding. <laughs> what, what did you say, Paul? Sunny 16 is pin and tail on the donkey. Yeah, it's about the same. You know, but <laughs> I, I'm being unfair about it because sunny 16 works fine if you're shooting black and white negatives or color negatives. Yeah. There's no slide shooter, it's worthless. It's, no, it's you're, just you're not wrong. You don't have the latitude. Right. But you know, uh, Sherry, Sherry has the perfect uh her uh Sherry, what is your uh, your <laughs> your examples for uh Sunny 16? Uh, sunny 16's good when it's sunny and sunny 11's good. And then you have um overcast is F5, and then you have dark as crap F2. Dark as crap F2. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. That, that's uh, that, that that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> I mean, how can you go wrong with that? The thing about like the thing about the Sunny 16 that bothers me is that you don't really understand the way the light meters work in cameras. A light meter is calibrated at the factory to read an 18% gray reflectance. So all light meters are pretty much set for the same thing, no matter whether it's a handheld meter or a, a meter built in a camera or whatever. They're going to read 18% gray. So where you get into trouble is if you're shooting something that doesn't happen to be 18% gray. If you're shooting a, a white horse, a gray horse, and a black horse, and you take the same exposure for all three of them, you're going to have three pictures of gray horses because the camera is going to see the white horse say, this is too light, I need to make it darker. It's going to see the dark horse. It's going to say, this is too dark, I need to make it lighter. So a light meter is only a starting point to, to figure out what your true exposure should be. I know that's that's more complicated than it needs to be, but you learning how to learning how a light meter works is really key to getting a good a good picture. I think. To be fair to the EV system, Fortlander had several versions of something like the. For example, I'm looking at a Vito BL, and it doesn't have the EV. But the downside of that is they put the aperture uh, way up at the front, in front of the focus, and 
when you change the focus, the index for where you're setting your aperture moves with the focus. So it's not on the top of the camera. So you, you might be reading, you know, the F4 mark on the top of your camera, but the index it's, it's supposed to line up with has moved. So there's pros and cons to the EV system and the, and yeah. the non-EV system. Sounds very um, German. Yeah. And there's a difference between EV and LV. You have exposure very uh, what is exposure yeah. value and light value. And I, I got to be honest with you, even I don't fully grasp the difference, but I don't hate the idea because I do understand why they did it. I understand how in the mid 50s, if you were new to photography and you had a light meter and you had a camera, it's much easier to only think of one number than two. To most people, what an f-stop is, what it actually means, you know, the, the ratio of the entrance pupil to the blah, 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 is just so hard to understand. So I understand why they did it. What I don't like, though, is the various implementations of it. You know, the retinas... Uh, the Foatlanders, a lot of the German cameras like these really rigid pins that are difficult to defeat, whereas some of the Japanese companies, um, Yashica did a, a decent job of it, uh, Rico did a decent job where they'll be coupled, but if you want to override it, all you essentially do is just hold one ring while turning the other. And it'll let you override it pretty easily. I mean, you still, you always have to do something to override it, but the Japanese method of just letting you just kind of with a slightly more effort twist it and you could break the coupling was way better than having to move this tiny little pin. So, uh, but, but I, I would be curious though, to go back in time and ask a photographer when, when these cameras were new, what they thought of it. I, I have to guess they probably thought it was great. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but. Well, Hasselblad 500 lenses, the, the C lenses, all the way up to this. Yeah, all the C lenses were, were EV coupled. So you set the EV on the lens and then it locked in each combination of shutter speed and f-stop. And it was very convenient for a commercial photographer. You would just turn yeah. at an EV and then you would turn one ring and it would show you the various combinations of f-stops and shutter speeds. But it was always the same exposure. Yeah. Uh, I have one last oddball Voigtlander question for Ira. What is the model that was the first camera with a built-in flash? Was that a Vitrona? I do not know. Ah, did a model in the 1960s, maybe, that looked like one of the, uh, you know, somewhere between the 1000S and, and the, the late, like Vitarets, but it had a a, um, a black plastic handle that was actually the battery holder that stuck out the bottom of the camera, and it was the first camera to have a built-in flash. Was it electronic flash or bulb flash? Yeah, yeah, electronic flash. Wow, huh? And I've never seen one working. I hear that they are out there. That you know that some of them have survived. Does anybody have? There's a Footlander Everready case with the flash yeah. reflector built oh. in. To the yeah, part that goes it. under the camera. Yes. Yeah. I forget which, I don't know if, which camera, which. It's for, it's for the Vitessa. Yeah, it's for the Vitessa. Yeah. That is nuts. I was about to say the Mamiya slash Tower 41, but that's a bulb, uh, built-in bulb flash too. It's not electric. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, the Voigtlander was definitely the first electronic flash built in. Uh, Adam Paul joined us while we were talking. Adam, wasn't there a Keystone camera back in the early 60s that had an electronic flash? I seem to remember you having one. A 126? It was a one. So it could, it, then it would have had to been 63 or later then. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, All right. Then that would be 63. Then that couldn't have been the first then. All right. Yeah. The, 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 the Vitronas from 1964. Uh, okay. All right. And 
Close. Oh, can I get a picture of it on here? That was your that was your uh, <laughs> fake is. background. There it is. There it is. Uh, well, I got a glimpse. Yeah. So it's there got a selfie stick on the bottom of it. Yes. <laughs> Those and, the flash uh, batteries. Yeah, and that's the uh, yeah, that was the flash <laughs> batteries. So Mike, if we want to transact trans transition out of Voigtlander talk, um <laughs> sure. How are things going with the uh, estate sale crawl that you did up in, in Chicago? Of all the times that I've gotten scores, estate sales have been my best. But I, I was talking to Bob about this just the other day. And you know he's gone to a lot of estate sales. And the, the total number of good scores you've had from estate sales, Bob, is, is what? Zero. Zero. Yeah. And so I, I shared this in the group about one that I had recently. And um, a couple of people were like, wow, that's cool. How come I never find anything at estate sales? And, and I'll tell you, it's, it's hard, right? Like you could go to a hundred estate sales and not find anything. Um, in fact, I hadn't found anything since like before COVID, you know, uh, and, and that has nothing even to do with COVID. I found people were still doing estate sales throughout the whole pandemic, but um, uh, I, I've had some pretty good pickups, but I found one it was in the south side of Chicago and it, it said cameras, right? So, you know, for those of you, so let me back up a little bit here first. I use a website, it's in the United States. I don't know if they have these out in other countries, but it's called estatesale.net. And basically you you just search, it's like a search engine for estate sales. It, it has mostly ones done by professional estate sale companies. On the occasion, you will see some private ones in there, but it's mostly the pros, uh, they'll take very crappy, low-quality pictures of what they have. They almost never describe anything correctly. And it's 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 not ideal, but it's all you got. So anyway, so I see this estate sale, it says cameras. And I see two pictures. One of them shows like a folding table with what I could make out are like Kodak Duoflexes, old Polaroids, some box cameras, some Instamatics. You know, the typical fodder you'll find at like garage sales, estate sales, antique shops and everything. You know, nothing interesting. But then I see in a second picture, I see a Nikon F. Uh, it's the original F that had the Photomic Finder. So I was like, all right, I don't need that. But then I saw behind it were two blue boxes two blue, they look kind of like a, a velvet blue. And I'm thinking, all right, what comes in velvet blue boxes? Nikon rangefinder stuff. Nikon uh, put their, both the cameras and the lenses in these boxes. Now the picture quality is low, so you really can't see what it is, right? Now I've, I've found like on eBay, a lot of times from KEH or Roberts or some of these places, you think you're buying a whole bunch of, uh, of EverReady cases with mysterious cameras in them, but they're almost always empty. So I'm thinking, all right, these boxes are probably empty, but what are the odds that somebody has all these junk, basic, simple cameras, a Nikon F and just randomly has empty Nikon rangefinder boxes? So I was like, I'll take a shot. So it was on a day I had off work. I drove up there, took me 45, 50 minutes to get there. The line, even though I got there an hour and a half after it started, there was still a line. You had to put your name on a waiting list to get in. Uh, for those of you who've never been to estate sales, you get there too early. You got to wait. Um, so I get in line. Thankfully, I didn't have to wait that long. I get in there, walk around. The house is tiny. You know, this this area of Chicago is very old house, uh, houses that are all squished together. The garages are in the back. You know, there's an alley. So uh, very, very narrow. So I finally find the room where the, the cameras are. And I, I recognize from the pictures, the shelf where the, the two blue boxes were. And it's not there anymore. I'm like, ah, crap. You know, a lot of times you go to estate sales and uh, the antique shop people, the, the professional pickers usually are the first people there. So to get anything good, uh, if you're just a regular person, can be difficult. But I'm looking around the room 
And sure enough, on another shelf, I see the two blue boxes. So I go open it up. First one is, an, uh, it's, it's heavy. I open it up. It's the Nikkor 135 rangefinder lens, still in its, its leather case. And it has hanging off the neck strap, the little leather case, even tinier leather case with the viewfinder for 135 millimeter. I open up the second one. It's got the 85 F2 in the, the leather case with the tiny little case on there with the viewfinder on it. I'm like, oh. So I look around. I see a third one. This one's got the 35 millimeter F2.5. So I have three accessory lenses, all in the original boxes. I, I won't tell you the price, but every single person on this call would have bought it. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm starting to shake. Like you ever, you ever get to that point and start to get so excited, like a little kid, you know, at Christmas time, when you, you come down and you see that Santa was here and the presents around the tree, you're like, I gotta go open it. Well, like me, it's like, I gotta get out of here. Gotta get out of here. Before I leave though, I notice in a, a far corner of the room, I see the, the Brown rangefinder case. So I go, I'm like, pick it up. It's heavy flip it open. It's, it's the S2, Nikon S2 that goes with it. And it had the, the Nikkor 514 on it. Um, so I had the S2 with the one with the 50 millimeter, the 35 millimeter, the 85, the 135 all together. Uh, it's absurdly low. Clearly this estate sale company did not, did not do their research. I, you know, there, there could be a part of me where if, if I was seeing this for sale, like a garage sale, where it was just a person, I might actually feel bad and let them know you're asking way too little, but this was being sold by a company like to me that they should know better. So uh, I had no problem plunking down the, the necessary amount to get out of there. Uh, oh, and all the lenses, the, the 85 and the 135 had the, um, the hoods too in there too. So everything was in great shape. All of them had the EP markings, which really doesn't add value. It just denotes that these cameras were picked up at a post exchange almost certainly by American servicemen in the military, probably in Korea. And the, the point of the post-exchange was to encourage service people to spend their money to go back into the economies of these local countries, but at the benefit of when you, you don't pay sales tax, and then when you bring it back home, customs won't charge you. Because back then, I think if you bought anything of any value, you'd have to declare it when you came back in the country. But these things that have the EP markings would basically be exempt because um, they know that it was bought through that, that program. So uh, it tells me that whoever lived in this house, this is probably the original owner, probably had it. They clearly cared for it, took really, really well. So that's how I got my Roloflex, actually. It uh, was uh, bought in Portugal and the man was in the service and he brought it home. All the manuals are in Portuguese. I can't read a single one. Oh, geez. <laughs> That's interesting. You know, and, and I'm telling the story the way I'm not necessarily to brag, but it helps when you do these estate sales to have some kind of search engine like that. You know, I don't know if Theo, if they have a estate sales.net in, in Australia, but if there is such a place, you know, that definitely helps. Um, there is, but it's nowhere near as mature no as what, what the American market has. What about in Canada? How order bill? To speak to estate sales, generally the the professional pickers get get almost first dibs. Like yeah, in Southern Ontario, which is sort of Greater Toronto Hamilton region, it's like my mom well, when she still was had all her marbles. Unfortunately, she has Alzheimer's, so she's no longer involved with this group. They had sort of like a, a charity shop, and on the rare occasion, I would try and value cameras, but it's mostly like dead 90s point and shoots that came through there was nothing interesting because again all the nice stuff got picked clean so and i know the usual suspects who picked them clean 
Yeah, I, that's happened to me before, too. There was an estate site I went to a couple of years back where there was clearly a whole table of cameras, rollies, some really nice stuff. And I went there on the first day and I got in line way in advance. I was the ninth person in line on the list. I could see eight people ahead of me. When they opened the doors, they let the first 10 people in. So I was in the first wave. The, the, the eight people in front of me all went to different areas of the house. So I was the first person through the door in the room with the cameras and about half of what was posted in the pictures was already gone. And I remember wow. asking the, the lady or the, whoever worked there and they said, yeah, we had a private sale last night. So yeah. um, the, the best tips I have for one, if you have a search engine, use it. Two, if it says, like if that estate sale had said Nikon rangefinders and lenses, there's no chance I would have gotten it. The fact that it wasn't described, it's kind of like eBay. You're going to get your best deals on things that aren't described properly. So look for camera-like things, right? Look for so Voigtlander spelled with an H, like with, as in John Voigt. Yeah, yeah. Things things that are misspelled uh, or not described at all. If you see the word cameras, you got to be good and be able to look at blurry pictures and tell, boy, that looks like a Nikon rangefinder box, or boy, that sure looks like a, a, a you know insert camera name here. But also look for things that people who like cameras might also like. I th this there's no scientific proof of this, but I have found people that have like a lot of audio equipment often liked cameras too. So if you see a house that has like old reel to reels or multiple turntables or sometimes you'll see people who are clearly tinkerers you know, maybe they have a basement or garage workshop where you see like, you know, uh, I, I live near Hammond, Indiana, and Hammond was a, you know, steel mill, East Chicago steel mill. A lot of these guys had basements where there'd be like glass jars hanging from the ceiling with screws and nuts. Like that people back then didn't throw anything away. You know, they would just keep, you'd have a, sh a shelf full of wire. You know, you, when you see stuff like that, there is a slightly better chance they may have something that's interesting. Uh, if it's in a neighborhood that I don't want to say poor, you know, but um, the hardworking neighborhoods, you know, the ones that maybe today aren't as nice as they once were, but maybe 50, 60 years ago were nice neighborhoods. Um, there's a better chance you're going to find a person who was in the military, bought that stuff, came home after the war, raised a family, you know, died within the last 10 years, and now their family's getting rid of their stuff. There is a chance you might find something cool there. If you live in an area where there's some brand new townhomes and you see everything is like Christmas decorations and fancy furniture, it's highly unlikely you're going to find anything cool there. So I won't even go to those. But uh, knowing the areas in, in which people might have had that kind of stuff, looking for pictures of things at the estate sale that might hint that the person was into cameras, uh, that's going to get you a better chance. But um, if so, like if you expect to see an estate sale that says Fotlander Septon lens, you know, or anything like that, it, it, the odds of finding that are, are slim to none. Uh, but then, you know, honestly, the, the best tip is just persistence. You, you got to keep going. You know, I mean, like I said, this was the first time I found anything even remotely good um, in, in over three years. So I found, um, a very, I found a very good deal on a Kiker Mat FTN yeah. two weeks ago with 105 2.5. Because uh, they spelled Nickermat with a K yeah. instead of an N, yeah. Well, and sometimes, you know, the people running the estate sale, if they do see like a Nikon, 
you know, a knicker mat or a cannon, they probably know enough to like, all right, take a picture of that. But they may not understand that that box of folders might have a really cool, you know, Zeiss icon, you know, camera sitting in a box that isn't photographed. So even if you go to an estate sale that has one camera, there's a really good chance there's more than that one there. Or even if there isn't more than one, maybe you'll find some expired film or maybe you'll find, you know, some cool uh, Kodak advertising or, or, you know, signs or just something that might, you know, the ephemera that, you know, a lot of us tend to, to like to collect as well too. So, you know, be willing to go to those, even if you see a camera, like a couple point and shoots that maybe aren't that interesting, there's a chance they have older ones too. And maybe you'll get lucky. Andrew Smith, how you doing, man? Anything new since last time we talked? Uh, not a whole lot. I picked up a couple of things. I got this right here. This is uh, one of those uh, TT Artisans lenses from China, but it's kind of, I don't know if you can see the light's not very good in here. I got the lens hood on too. I could see the hood. Yeah, there but it's go. one of the, um, it's kind of based off those old Leica 28mm f5.6s from like decades ago, but uh, it's pretty interesting and they're pretty cheap. You can get them on uh, eBay for around like $300. And uh, I found it to be pretty impressive so far. What's the focal length of it? It's a 28 millimeter. Okay. And they're wow. built in, uh, they're built in the M mount, but I have mine, I was using it on my Sony a7. So I have the, okay. the adapter on the back. So that's a lot of the size right there, but it's, it's really small and uh, the optical quality is good. I mean, obviously you're going to be shooting in pretty bright light since you only have F 5.6. That's the fastest the aperture goes, but I liked it so far. That's a cool little lens. Yeah. It's, um, I can't think of the specific name. I know the Leicas all have the name, but it's very much based off one of the old Leicas. I think they actually reintroduced this one a little while ago. It's based on a a, a 28 Sumeron F5.6. Yeah, yeah. That Leica made in the 40s, I think 40s and 50s, and then Mm -hmm. reissued recently. And this is a terrific uh, copy of it. It's supposed to be a great lens. Everybody I've been talking to says they love it. Pretty neat little thing. And then you say you had something else, or was that it? No, I actually, I picked this up. I got a little carried away. I bought a Avenon 21 millimeter F2.8. I had the viewfinder. And then I I realized I didn't have a a screw mount camera. So I bought a Canon 7. And then I couldn't fit the the viewfinder on it. So I bought this little uh, bracket right here that's actually for a flash. So I got a pretty wanky setup there, but it's it's pretty interesting. That's going to have some pretty significant parallax error there. So don't do any close-ups. Yeah, that's that's what I'm afraid of. But uh, the, the <laughs> is pretty wide. It's probably about... Uh, Describe it a little bit, though, for people who, who can't see it. So you got you have your camera, <laughs> yeah. right? The Canon 7. And there's a bracket hanging off the side from the flash post. Yeah. So I guess because they included the light meter, there's no actual shoe mount right. on top of that, the camera. There's none whatsoever. One of the, one of the major f- flaws of the Canon 7 is they thought they did not need to give it a hot, uh, accessory shoe at all. Yeah. So there was a okay. PC port on the far okay. left side of the camera, just past the, um, the little right. viewfinder. And it has it's sort of a, a bayonet. Yeah. yeah. And you, you twist on this little viewfinder. There's two models. Okay. I have a really small one that just has like the the little um the cold shoe just right on top and you actually have okay. to wire the pc plug on the side that's, that's wild a broader one that goes all the way across the top and has it more like centered over the lens but then that covers the uh the little light meter readout so i don't know what the point of that would be but there are two <laughs> models and i went with the smaller one so cool pretty interesting little setup and the yeah. light meter actually works i haven't seen too many of those old selenium meters that still function but this no. is very accurate Mr. Smith, uh, how much did that set you back? Because I've got a Canon 7 as well, and I would love it for sort of accessory viewfinders if I want to go wider than 35. 
So that particular finder was, um, it was about as much as the camera. It was somewhere, it, I think it was a little over a hundred dollars. Ouch. Yeah. They're, they're not cheap. Apparently they're very rare. Cause I, I, I posted a p- picture of it somewhere and somebody was like, how did you find one of those? I've been looking for one for years. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Canon accessories for range finders, an obsession in their own right. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Adam, you, uh, you've had some experiments. We've been hearing that you may have a breakthrough with uh, an extinct format of film. Is, is that it's, right? It's trying and it's been trying. So I'm sort of trying to replicate one of the, it's not disc film, thankfully, but it's APS. APS. Which I've learned at any time. No, no disc film. Anytime you- um, see how fast, Did you see how fast I was able to grab that? That was good. <laughs> Anytime Go you put the label smart on something, all it means is that it's going to be obsolete real soon. Yeah. Um, but I'm working um, and I actually ordered a 35 to 24 millimeter slitter, which I'm going to be working with. And I've seen a video on another Facebook group on APS shooting where someone was able to get a camera because in case you don't know, a lot of the APS cameras have an information exchange where, have, where the film actually has a magnetic coating. And so we're trying to see, a lot of us are sort of trying to see whether that magnetic coating is actually necessary to shoot film on an APS camera. Obviously a 24 millimeter wide film, you've got to do a lot of manipulation to get it to be something that the camera takes. So I've been looking around all these different um, hole punchers and different other things as a mechanism to try to um, take film and try to perforate the, something that replicates the APS dual perforation holes that are on there. So it's sort of where I am. I'm, and I'm sort of trying to start with some very basic, pretty dumb APS cameras like this uh, wonderful Vivitar XP200 here, which I actually look forward to using. It does have an autofocus and some sort of programmed exposure, but it's not so smart that the camera itself may shut down when it doesn't look, when it doesn't find what it's looking for. So that's sort of my effort and insanity this week. That's really cool. You have to keep us up to date and see how well you, how far you can get on it. Definitely will. Terry Martin in the board uh, made a specific request, Adam, that you revisit your 2018 post on 110 cameras uh, and see if there's been any new info or discoveries in the past four years. Have you done anything with 110 since then? I have. I've found a couple of different Hanamex models that um, are, are in some ways sort of similar to the, the Fujika. Fujika 350 zoom. Yeah. So there are some um, bulk, you know, some sort of rigid bodied um, cameras from Hanamex that are not very easy to find. I think like a VXL zoom, um, but that does actually have a good bit of choosing of aperture and, um, and focus points. So um, other than that, I haven't seen an awful lot new that's come along that I've kind of detected, but I do keep an eye out for 110 when I can. Theo, is, is it easier to find Hanamix stuff down in Australia or is this, this is pretty uncommon it there is, too? It is. It's just everywhere. It's, okay. um, you know, obviously it was the cheap brand that just got widely distributed across, across Australia. Yeah. They, they rebranded a lot too, which is interesting because you can actually get some really good deals sometimes on cameras because I think they even rebranded Voigtlanders at, at one point as well. I think uh, they did everything, yeah. Yeah, they did everything. And, and yeah, you can end up with... Yeah, the equivalent of, of a um, Voigtlander um, 35 SLR, you know, rebranded as a Hammonex sometimes and, and, and things like that. So it's it's pretty pretty um, pretty good to to get those. I think some of the 
the little compacts also um the little minoxes you know the little minox 35s they got rebranded as well and sometimes there's a few good bargains on those as well Animex rebranded chinon miranda fujica samokas petris royal practicas panicons tokyo kagaku vera even the walls god it's like they, they just they were like we'll take anything we can get <laughs> yeah they did they did and they rebranded yeah. rebrands sometimes too oh, <laughs> rebrand rebrand it's yeah, like the chinese so. it's like the chinese copy of the zenit or something that was <laughs> you know based off of the leica originally turning an slr but um just real quick the the article that terry was talking about that adam wrote was in 2018 even if you don't have any interest in 110 cameras uh adam went super mike ekman in terms of detail <laughs> on this comparison between what 12 different cameras you did it Something. was it did wind up being 12 actually i think by the time i was done he just did full comparisons when he had a chart explaining features which ones you you could control shutter speed on that that fujica has a zoom lens on a 110 uh, candy bar mm -hmm. shaped camera with a the lens looks like a tumor sticking out the front of it yeah um so zoom it's focus yeah so uh if if you're interested in in the 110 format that's like the meister uh article because he goes he, he does really really great and show sample images too on most of them mm -hmm. which is really impressive so terry it does not sound like there will be a follow-up but uh but adam still does have a fondness for the small format at least to some capacity okay speaking of small formats there's one thing i have to show from my new purchase since the last show it doesn't get much smaller than this <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> sony. the sony oh, mavica the mavica and yeah, the media for it is fashion floppy disks. So if you want something really small and really fun to shoot with, 0.3 of a megapixel. So when when Robot Theo sees a digicam that uses floppy disks, does that like make him happy or does it like completely corrupt his his uh, code? It's bit, and it's a bit like having an affair with an older woman. It, it, <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> It um it um it, it does make make him happy because it is actually fun. These are really fun cameras to, to play with. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just don't expect a, a huge amount of quality uh, in terms no. of. Uh, All the ladies look good in point three megapixels. Yeah. Interesting <laughs> enough, this came with the original diskettes, and I downloaded the pictures from it, and someone had actually used this for a wedding in nineteen ninety eight. Wow! You should find those so, people and see if they ever got their wedding pictures. <laughs> yes <laughs> they probably just store them on the discs thinking, yeah oh, that, that's somewhere. our backup copy yeah uh, so. <laughs> uh I, my only pickup um you know we already talked about the nikon but one that i wanted to show real quick because very uncommon i got an italian camera called a durst automatica uh this thing dates from about 1956 and uh, it's auto exposure so it's it's true auto exposure it's got on the shutter speed dial leaf shutter from b one second all the way to 300, one three hundredth. And the one three hundredth speed has a notch that says automat. And when you do that, um, the there's a little meter read out on the top. This one, unfortunately, the meter is dead, but it has a selenium cell. And essentially the, the meter uses like a trap system where it'll point to a shutter speed um, that matches what it recommend, what the meter's recommending. And when you press the shutter release, which is on the front of the camera. So it's a scale focused camera, there's no range finder. The shutter release is right up front here, and it's got, you know, a top line. The issue this one has, though, unfortunately, is it's like 
Anthony's Canon EF, when I wind the lever, it, the shutter fires immediately. So I can't, it, it fires every time I wind it, but I like the way it looks. I've never seen one of these before. Durst Automatica from, from Italy. And it's pretty sleek. You know, the whole top plate is pretty flat. So uh, if I ever get that one running, I'll, I'll probably review it. Uh, but we're uh, getting close to the two hour mark. We had 16 people when we started. We're down to 12. A few people dropped off. Bob dropped off. Anybody have any last minute questions or anything they've picked up recently that they want to talk about? Bill? Yeah, I went on a bit of an Olympus spree. Uh, bought a black OM1 MD off my brother with a late, a high serial number, MC Zoico 51.4. And I got an OM4 TI. Okay. The titanium OM4. Very nice. Yeah. And that was an interesting camera to shoot because it's got the spot metering system and you can shoot both. You can meter for both your shadows and highlights. Right. Yeah. It has multiple. And the camera will average it. The, the OM4 and the TI is a great camera, but its weakness is similar to that of the Nikon F3 and that the LCD will fade over time. Is yours okay? Mine's fine. Now, speaking okay? of F3s, I did have an F3 with a fading LCD and it, sadly it's now a donor bar, a body. Yeah, yeah. I found another F3. So I wound up with an F3T um, last year's okay. gas attack. Uh, and also I... Around my birthday, I picked up a Nikon FM3A because dream camera, always wanted one. My brother was selling his. I picked it up. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, but no, the, the Olympus OM4, I have the regular OM4. I don't have the TI version, which uh, other than the titanium, I think they're exactly the same. But um, They have the an view- improved circuit in the TI that doesn't oh, drain they? the battery. Okay. And that's about it. My brother was thinning his herd down because he wanted to buy rebuy his Leica R system. He mistakenly sold it 12 years ago and has been regretting it since. It's been driving me around the bend. <laughs> we'll talk so to he's, Paul. He's I want to see light. Larry's uh, press camera there. Ooh. Yeah, I've accidentally become a Mamiya. Uh, um Yes, it's uh, with the graph lock back instead of the cool yeah. S-shape back. I uh, now have an RB67, a C220, and um, a 645, and now uh, this guy. So I kind of accidentally became a Mamiya collector. I didn't really mean to. This was is that, uh, is that handle on the focus knob? Is that standard or is that an accessory? It looks pretty. I mean, it's 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 machined as part of the uh, it is, okay. So yeah, it's, that's cool. Uh, it doesn't screw off or anything. It's just okay. It's, it's a it's a bit one hunk of of aluminum. Very cool. Yeah, didn't really mean to get it. I just saw it on uh, Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> it didn't mean to and, get it. Yeah, and I just uh, I slipped in the shower and fell on it. <laughs> Nice. All I was going to say is if you're a true Mamiya uh, collector um, and you got the RB67, you're not a true one until you got one of these for the RB67. Oh, that, is, <laughs> that looks very Terminator. <laughs> this is the sports finder, just in case you yeah. find yourself that you're wanting to go out and yeah. shoot some sports with an RB67. Oh, who um, wouldn't? You know? and, and yeah, probably the most useless accessory in the world. But what's interesting is it actually has a viewfinder uh, in the back as well as in a optical one that goes into into the camera and sort of redirects it underneath. But oh, for the focus, kind of like like Rolleiflex, yeah, yeah. Bizarrely, it actually not only do you have the picture, the the actual scene backwards, 
it flips it upside down as well, almost like a large format <laughs> situation. Yeah, it's just so for focus. It's just for focus. Back when I shot basketball uh, in the 90s, there were, the guy who worked for the university shot basketball on a, a Hasselblad. He shot sports on a on a, uh, a 500C something. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. I, I mean, I, I paired it up with um, another purchase, which was the, the 6x8 power winder. So oh, yeah. that that that's obviously you're starting to get into the sports territory then yeah. <laughs> with the power winder. <laughs> but um, like, I, I'm not I'm not sure I'll use it for that. About two frames per minute. <laughs> I, I think it's one frame per two seconds or something. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so the rabbit hole I've gone down is uh, I and it might have been from one of Mike Ekman's reviews about uh, front shutter release cameras that I I had an Edixa for a while till it broke. And they were nice. So then uh, we were at a flea market and I got this Miranda, uh, actually not a different Miranda, DR with the front shot. And I really liked that. So that led to me getting another Miranda to get some other lenses. And that led me to what I got last night, which is a Topcon. Very nice. Oh, yeah. Um, which uh, uh, I have yet to put the, it seems to work. I got film in it and I will shoot it. How, tomorrow how is the that. film advance lever on that? Is it smooth? As oh, it's like butter. They all are like that. I don't know what type of ball bearings or lube or whatever yeah. Topcon use, but that is the smoothest film advance. No, I'd I, say even, not only even, that, everything, the, the shutter just has a very yeah. precise, like everything just seems very precise yeah. on it. Yeah. yeah. Tokyo Kagaku was the only company to really make a challenge to Nikon with the F. I, you know, I obviously they didn't long-term succeed. Uh, it, at one point, the RE was the official camera of the U.S. Navy, but um, they they did pull a lot of things out of, you know, put or put a lot of technology to that camera that made it hold up really well. You know, their their solution for in-body metering was far superior than what Nippon Kugaku was doing at the time, and their lenses were excellent. So that's uh, I'm eager to hear your thoughts, share them in the group after you get a chance to shoot that because those cameras are really, really fantastic. Is that a focal and, plane shutter or? Uh, yeah. Uh -huh. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's a plane. conventional horizontal. Uh, yeah. Goes up to one one thousand. It is just everything's very precise on the camera. Top Gun cameras have both like the best and the worst SLR systems simultaneously. The worst being the the Unirex UV mount leaf shutter cameras, which almost never work. Uh, but the REs, the focal planes are really, really nice. So you'll enjoy I've got, that. I've got mine loaded up with uh, Atlanta Film Company 250D uh, all ready to go down to Cape Canaveral to shoot the launch of the uh, the Artemis. At least it'll be... At the what, the, four, the fourth four, time? Fourth or fifth time <laughs> I've tried to see the uh, Artemis take off. Uh, but yeah, I've got the Topcon loaded up. All right. Uh, I wanted to ask Dan real quick before we go. Dan... For the guy that has access to so many cool cameras, do you ever get gas ever? Is oh, there are ever you kidding me? I wake up in the morning with it. I, it's all constantly. okay. So, so give us a real quick rundown of what it's like to be you and having gas at the same time. <laughs> well, what it's led me to is uh, a catch and release program <laughs> that I think almost any game warden would would find appropriate. I. When I find something that I, I've got to have, typically I have a plan for how long I, I want to hold it. Like whether it's a whim or whether it's something that really fits into my collection that I think might benefit the collection as a whole. 
most everything that I find falls into that latter category. <laughs> so, uh, no, I, I typically I'll have an idea of whether or not it's something I'm really super interested in. And I definitely have to have or or, or if it's something that I just want to I just want to use because now I have two different kinds of, of problems. One is the collector problem. One is the shooter problem. And they don't necessarily coincide. So the catch and release program is is definitely the most important aspect of my my gas. <laughs> Very cool. I know that one well, Dan. <laughs> Thank you. I, I go through that uh, on a regular basis. I recently bought or traded for a uh, Alpha 6D with a macro Switar on it, the 518. And oh, yeah. uh, I've had the, the body, you know, I could care less about, but the the, uh, the lens I've been shooting with and... I actually have two of them. Radu has one he's repairing right now. So I, this one was really nice shape. So I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to keep this one. And today I put it up on eBay. <laughs> oh, so boy. that was my, I caught it. Now I'm releasing it. So some of us are better at releasing than others. Uh, Ira's doesn't release too much. I don't. I know Anthony sometimes struggles to let things go. <laughs> but that's a good skill to have. I think when you have access to what you do, Dan is being able to hold on to something, play with it, enjoy it, and then let someone else have their time with it. And that's exactly the, that's exactly the idea is that everything needs to find a new loving home yeah. eventually. So yeah, that's, that's how I justify things. It's like cool. a one in one out kind of rule usually. So is that how that like a 72 is going to make you go the way to the camera right. share program right we're we're gonna catch it and then we'll release it back to you <laughs> nice i'll keep trying i'll keep trying <laughs> just remember whose auction you want to put it in when you're ready to release it back into the right. wild yeah i'm yeah. gonna go start fishing downstream from dan yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> nice so i have a whole whole bunch that i need to release uh what are um some good spots to uh get rid of them paul <laughs> well, I mean, I will help I, you. I'm limited only to Leica, but I don't know. I, I'm start. I, I don't know. Send me a list of what you got. Let's let's take a look. <laughs> it's definitely not Leica, and the one Leica I have, you would think is not worthy. Oh, I don't know. Every every camera <laughs> is worthy. It's D only an R three. It's not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if it's working, that's that's the most important part. Dan, it did you get a great. chance to listen to our last episode with Ryan Jones? I, I heard a little bit of it, not the whole thing. Towards the end, he talked about making this Franken-Leica where he took like an M3 body, removed the self-timer, removed the, self, the sink. He replaced the back with like a later version, uh, an M5 top plate or something. Like he literally just like hacked this thing together of spare parts. Oh, I love uh, it. I've got to see this thing. Well, and wait. he- he joked about he wanted to make a camera so ugly that nobody would love it. And, and I'm thinking to myself, Ryan, people are going to love that thing because it's a it's a hybrid like. A, so, exactly. It'll, yeah. be one, it'll be one of a kind. <laughs> it's an original. That sounds like it's right up my alley. It yeah. was one of a kind. One of a kind. Yeah. Iris got a bunch of one of a kind cameras. Uh, I have one more Eigenbau, which we call the homemade cameras. Um that I was able to handle that I'm going to have up before the end of the year. And then real quick, um, Howard, my review tomorrow actually is going to be for a Miranda. I have a Miranda review coming tomorrow. So 
uh, you can look forward to that. I got some pretty nice pictures out of that one. So, all right, we've gone over two hours actually. So I'm going to have my work cut out for me on this episode. Um, I want to thank all you guys for coming. A few people had to drop off while we were on, but Iris still here, Bill, Sherry, uh, Howard, Dan, awesome to have you back. Larry, awesome to have you back. Andrew, uh, Adam had to go. Robert had to go. Miles left. Uh, I, I got to be honest with you, I, I couldn't keep track of other people. We had 16 people at one point on this show. So that's a new record. We'll see how hard I, I have to go through the editing on this. Um, I know what we're, we want to do for future episodes is kind of pick a brand and sort of feature it. I mean, we won't make the whole episode about a single brand unless there's really that much to talk about, but uh, we did Foatlander today. Uh, if you guys want to hear a specific brand mentioned next time, the absolute best way to do it is not to go on Facebook and ask us. It's to actually show up and bring you know whatever discussion you want to talk about we could talk about argus we could talk about like again uh whatever you want we'll try and you know maybe do like a miniature buyer's guide king um, regular king regular uh we are working on uh, a third euro episode so we should be getting to that i'm hoping by the end of november uh we're trying to maybe get some very prime minister yeah we're gonna see if we can get another prime minister from this show uh, we're trying to get a couple guests specifically that you guys may want to talk to, um, from over there, but, um, we're going to be having that coming up soon. Uh, I think we're going to have more Digicam stuff. It's the, the, the people are demanding it. Maybe what, what people are shooting today, you know, adapting lenses, just whatever you guys want to talk about, An but entire digital show. Yes. Yeah, we could do that. I mean, I say it's film photography, but the way I look at it is if it's something that's interesting to people and it's it's fun to shoot, then there's no reason we can't talk about it. And we had we had the the father of digital cameras on the show. So that's sort of like the I think one of my favorite episodes still to this very day. But we'll they're all getting, getting some good. of the trendy crowd. We'll start getting some of the trendy crowd. If we yeah. Yeah. If anybody's listening, knows some people who are new to film photography, who are interested in learning, I think it would be really cool to get kind of a maybe like an intro uh, kind of episode and, and sort of make it more welcoming to people who are first getting into the hobby instead of some of us grizzled collectors that have so many obscure Italian cameras and, and stuff like that. But um, uh, as always, the topics discussed on the Camera SD podcast are decided upon you guys as you call in. And uh, I want to thank everybody one last time for coming on the show. I hope you guys have a good rest of your week. So uh, good night, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Always a blast. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, everyone. Vogtländer. Vogtländer. For non-German speakers, this is a little bit difficult because of the umlaut, the er at the end, so Vogtländer, and also because the oi combination is not really pronounced as you would expect, so it's not Vogtländer or, or something similar, it's more Vogtländer in German.